0: you have your Bibles today, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we are in a series uh, making our way up to uh, Christmas that we are uh, a series titled No Ordinary Birth and, and looking at the the different events that occurred around the birth of Christ and how it pointed to the fact that indeed this was no ordinary birth and this was no ordinary child and that was the first uh, first sermon in the, in the series was on No Ordinary Child, uh, the angel's uh, um, appearance to uh, Mary. The second was the, the, the shepherd's uh, No Ordinary Announcement was the title of that sermon. And uh, today we are going to be looking uh, at the Magi, and I've titled this sermon No Ordinary Worth. No Ordinary Worth. And so we are going to uh, read in Matthew Uh, Chapter two, starting in verse one. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Oh, Lord, we are grateful this morning that we have your word. We have a sure word, a faithful word, a word that we can bank our lives on. And I ask, Lord, that today um, that you would do what only you can do, which is to build your house. Uh, Lord, I would labor in vain if I tried to do any of this in my own strength. And so, Lord, I pray for your grace to to do the work that only you can do through the preaching of your word through weak men. And I ask, Lord, that today um, that you would grant us the favor that we need to be able to focus, pay attention, and to really be, be, be convicted where we need to be convicted and transformed and changed. And so I pray for your grace to help uh, us to be sanctified, those who are yours and those, again, who are lost, that today would be the day that indeed you would find them. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace, and uh, we look to you uh, for our food today. In Christ's name, amen. Let me ask you this morning, how much is Jesus Christ worth to you? Is he worth surrendering that dream or goal that perhaps you've had since childhood? Is he worth giving up the most precious possession that you own? Is he worth sacrificing large swaths of your time to seek Him? Is He worth doing difficult things or even risking your life to serve Him? Now notice this morning, I'm not asking you how much is Christ worth in an objective sense. Oh, He's worth all of those things and much, much more. Rather, I'm asking you how much is Christ worth to you? If you and your family were the only Christians in eastern North Carolina and the closest church was in Raleigh. Do you think you would be there this morning worshiping him, showing and displaying just how much he's worth to you? Or would it be too far? Would it take too much time and too much gas and would it be just too much of your day spent traveling up and down I-40 to go and worship him? The truth is that, is that the links that you are willing to go and the sacrifices that you are willing to make to bring glory to Christ speaks volumes as to, as to how much he's really worth to you. And so let me ask again, how much is Jesus Christ worth to you? How far are you willing to go to serve him? How much are you willing to sacrifice to bring glory to Well, as we look into the visit of the Magi this morning in in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see a group of men who were willing to make some, some pretty hefty sacrifices to worship Christ. Not because they had to, not because somebody told them to, but because they wanted to. They believed this child to be of such extraordinary worth that they were compelled to make some extraordinary sacrifices to seek Him, to serve Him, and to worship Him. And I would just ask that today as we walk through this passage, Lord, would You do the work in us, that You would reawaken us to the extraordinary worth of our Savior, so much so that it compels us to lay down everything we have to bring glory to His name. The main point I want you to take away today is this. Examine your heart. How much is Christ worth to you? And so as we walk our way through this passage today, that's the question that I I, I want you to use to examine your heart. How much is Christ worth to me? Let's look into the word of God. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 We're going to be introduced to the who, what, when, where, and why of this historical account. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And so Matthew begins by giving us a time marker as to when this historical series of events takes place. He says it was after Jesus was born, and it was in the days of Herod the king. Now we know that this Herod, which we have come to know as Herod the Great, was uh, ruling as king over Judea and Jerusalem uh, from about 36 B.C. to 4 B.C., And so what that means is that all the events in this passage today took place on or before 4 B.C. By the way, that gives us a huge clue as to when Jesus was born. Since Herod was still ruling as king, which again ended in 4 B.C., and Matthew says that this was after Jesus' birth, the absolute latest year of the birth of the Savior would be 4 B.C., which was the last year of Herod's reign. It's likely before that, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll let you dig into that. Next, Matthew introduces the who in verse 1. Look at this. Behold, wise men from the east. Now, a lot's been talked about about the wise men, but who were these men? Well, I think it's helpful for us to start out with, with who they were not. They were, I hate to spoil uh, the, the song that we, we just sang just a little bit ago, but they were not three kings. They were not three kings. First of all, we don't know that there was three of them. Say, how did we get three? Well, we get three because of the three gifts that they gave, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But guess what? Two people can give three gifts. Thirty people can give three gifts. So we don't really know exactly how many there were. There could have been three, could have been two, could have been thirty, could have been more. And how about the fact that they were kings? Were they kings? Well, we have to think about this. Don't you think if they were kings, Matthew would have said they were kings? Matthew was not deprived of the word for king in the Greek. In fact, he used it, used it right here in this passage for King Herod and then the king of the Jews speaking of Jesus. But here for these, these men, what, what does he use? He uses the word magoi, which is where the, the word that you often hear about these men, magi, that's where that comes from. And I think that's Latin if I'm not mistaken. And I think that this is a huge clue as to who these men were and where they were from. You see, Magi were, were counselors to kings in places like Babylon and Persia. Very important officials in the king's court uh, where, where, who were like, kind of like, uh, you might think of them kind of like the, the Google of their day, right? So the king would ask a question and it would be responsible to the wise men or the Magi to spit out the answer. And so that's what they, they did. They were there for, to give the king wisdom. And you may remember in in Daniel chapter 2, you may remember Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and and he calls in all of the wise men in, in his court and he demands that they tell him his dream and then after they tell him his dream, he wants to know the dream's interpretation. Well, that's an impossible task as you can imagine to tell somebody what their dream was without them telling it to you first. And so if you recall, they're not able to do that and Nebuchadnezzar orders all of the wise men in the land to be killed okay Daniel chapter 2 verse 13 we read this so the decree went out that is the decree from Nebuchadnezzar to kill the wise men and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them and so it seems that because the king ordered that all the wise men were to be killed and that Daniel and his companions were marked out to be killed, that it's highly likely that they were at least considered in this group of people known as wise men. Daniel was probably a wise man, a five to six hundred year predecessor of the wise men in our passage today. So they had come they had come about five to six hundred years after after Daniel. Now, we certainly cannot be dogmatic about exactly where these wise men came from in Matthew chapter two. Uh, But there is certainly a possibility, a good possibility, and I would say it's a probability that they came from ancient Babylon. And there's a couple reasons I'll give you for that. One is first, that's going to be in the right direction. Ancient Babylon would have been east of Jerusalem. They came from the east, and that's where Babylon was. And second, it actually explains why they would actually have knowledge that an extraordinary king would be coming from the Jews explains that remember the Jews were where in exile Babylon right you guys aren't used to talking back I know they were in Babylon and so if they were from that region in ancient Babylon they would have certainly known about their predecessor uh, uh, Daniel his life 500 to 600 years prior And, and in fact Daniel would have probably been a legend in their minds when we think about legends and different things, uh, different trades, you think about basketball. When you think of a legend in basketball, you think, oh, who's an extraordinary basketball player? Who inevitably comes to mind? Michael Jordan. That's right. He was extraordinary at what he did. Well, same way with these these wise men. They would, If they would have known about Daniel, they certainly would have thought that he was legendary. They would have heard about all the great things, amazing things that God had done through Daniel uh, they would have known about how he was the only one able to not only interpret dreams, but to actually tell a king the king his dream without being told at first. They would have heard about how God had saved him from the lion's den and all the great things that Daniel had done. And I think it is not only probable, I, I think it's quite probable, I should say, that a remnant of Daniel's prophecies about the Messiah that was to come were still around in the wise men's day in our passage to 600 years after Daniel's death. And you say, Corey, how, how can you say that? What do you have to stand on for that? Well, here's one, one thing. There's a lot of things, but here's one. Suetonius was a Roman historian who was alive in the first century. That's the same century as we, we have today in our, our, our passage. They were a little bit later than, than Daniel. And they, Suetonius lived into the second century. But he wrote this. He said, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. And so in the first century, there was this old belief that was still around in the Orient. And by the way, that's where Daniel had been and most likely where the wise men were traveling from. That the world was eventually going to be ruled by men coming from Judea. Perhaps the source of that old belief was Daniel. Perhaps copies of his manuscripts were still around in the Orient. Maybe that's how that they knew that a Jewish king was coming who would rule the world. Think about Daniel chapter 7 for a moment with me. Where we read about this coming king, this Messiah. Daniel says this, he says, I saw in the night visions of... They may or may not have. But if they had even just the teaching that came from Daniel, they would have known that this would be no ordinary king. They would have known that this would be an eternal king, one who would be enthroned forever and ever. They would have known that that this king would be a have worldwide dominion where all peoples and nations and languages would serve him, that this king would would be one whose kingdom would not be conquerable. It would be unconquerable with a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, Daniel said. Now, how much of this did the wise men know? We don't know. Maybe all of it. Maybe a part of it. But what we do know is they knew enough about this one who was born king of the Jews that they were willing to travel hundreds of miles... Through tumultuous desert terrain, leaving behind the comforts of home, being gone for months and months, to do what? To worship him. To worship him. You know you only wor- worship what you think is worthy of worship. And they thought that this one was so worthy of worship that they were able to sacrifice so much. Look at verse 2. After arriving in Jerusalem, they asked, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice they didn't say, Where is the King of the Jews? Which is would have been Herod, right? They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is a king uh, appointed versus a king that was born. Herod was a king that had, had been appointed. He had been appointed by Rome. He was a king of the Jews at that time who had been appointed by Rome. Not of Jewish, uh, not a pure Jewish lineage at least. And certainly not from the line of David. So he didn't have a right to the throne of David. They weren't there to see this king because this was a king that was appointed. And by the way, they didn't make their way to Rome so that they could see Caesar Augustus. Again, that is not that that, both of them were were not extraordinary kings. They were both ordinary kings. Rather, they were there to see the king born. The one who had a legitimate claim to. To the throne of David. The one that way they were convinced of. Was no ordinary king. With no ordinary worth. Which is why they were on a mission. To worship him. Remember you don't worship. What you don't see worthy of worship. The sacrifice. Of long hard days on the back of a camel. Or a Persian stallion. Or whatever they were on. Tracking through the desert. Was worth it. To worship the one born king. Of the Jews, they knew something, something about him enough to know that he was spectacular and extraordinary and worthy of worship. Let me just ask you again, pausing here: How much is Christ worth to you? Another way to, to answer ask that question is, is how important is the worship of Christ to you? How important is the worship of Christ to you? Would inconvenience prevent you? from worshiping Him on the Lord's Day? Would unnecessary plans cause you to skip gathering with a local body of believers to worship Him? Now, I'm not talking about providences that the Lord brings that would prevent us. You see, you and I, we live in a time where the Christian culture in America is for, not everywhere, but for the most part, so stinking man-centered that the Lord's day has essentially been transformed into man's day. And gathering together to worship the Lord has, has, has been gutted of its supreme importance in the life of a believer. See, worldliness has crept into many places in the church and, and is encouraging all kinds of excuses to, to serve man, man to serve himself instead of Christ on the Lord's day. Maybe you're thinking, preacher, you're just getting a little legalistic here. Well, I don't think I'm getting legalistic. I'm just being biblical. The Lord wants his people to worship him. Listen, I'm not trying to make you mad. I'm trying to get you to examine your heart. Corporate worship on the Lord's Day is the primary way that you and I are to show Christ's worth to us. That's the primary way. It's not the only way, but it's the primary way that the Lord has ordained for us to show just how much he's worth to us. I encourage you to examine your heart when it comes to worship today and how much that points to how much Christ is truly worth in your heart. Back to the text. How did they know that this extraordinary king had been born? Well, they tell us. For we saw his star when it rose. Now, I want to just go ahead and encourage you, don't get hung up on the star. A lot of people get so hung up on the star. Was it a star? Was it a convergence of Jupiter and Saturn? Was it a divinely created light? Listen, this is what you need to know. It was a God-given lighted sign in the sky to guide them to the one who was the light of the world. That's what it was. God is the sovereign mover of this event. God was doing what God does for his elect. He was seeking them and guiding them to his son. And indeed, guiding the nations here to his son, since they weren't part of the Jews. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, heard what? Well, heard that they were looking for this one born king of the Jews. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I think a little background on Herod very helpful here. Herod the Great, he was a master builder. You may have heard that the temple was called Herod's Temple. The reason it was called Herod's Temple is because Herod, he he engaged and started a huge renovation project on the the temple there in Jerusalem. And uh, it was completed, finally completed after his death. And so that's why it was called Herod's Temple, because again, he, he was the one that started that. But not only was he a master builder, he was a master of wickedness. Very wicked man. A self-consumed, power-hungry, conniving, brutal, paranoid, control freak. If he perceived that you were a threat to his throne, he would have you murdered in a heartbeat. In fact, it's reported that he killed several of his sons, several of his relatives, and even his own wife, all because he perceived that they threatened his power and his throne. That's the type of man we're talking about here. And by the way, that's how idolatry of the heart works. Whether the idol is power and control like Herod or or some other idol of the heart like comfort or pleasure. When those idols are threatened. Your heart is going to respond in a way to protect it at all costs. And oftentimes it's exactly what happened with Herod, this, 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 lashing out in anger. And even to the extreme, it would, heart idolatry will lead you to the extreme of just where it led Herod, which is seeking to extinguish uh, people by murder. That's why Jesus says murder starts in the heart. I won't steal Jeff's thunder for the sermon next week, but the, the, the threat of Herod, to Herod's idol of power and control led him to such depths of wickedness that he ordered all of the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under, to be murdered, all because he perceived that this king born was a threat to his throne. Now, with this background about Herod, it should not surprise us that when he heard that the Magi were searching for this one born king of the Jews, it says he was troubled. He was disturbed. His blood started boiling. And look what it says after that. It says, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, I think that we often have this picture in our minds of these Magi uh, as as three men on camels inconspicuously waltzing into Jerusalem, uh, kind of undercover. But it was probably much more of a spectacle than that. If you think about this, Magi were very important officials. They were very valuable to the king that they served. And so they probably weren't traveling alone. They probably had servants to attend to their needs and bodyguards for their protection. And I would imagine that their entrance into Jerusalem was, was, was with many people alongside them in their traveling band. And it probably looked a lot like watching a parade to the people in Jerusalem. With the attendants going before them and the attendants going behind them and the Magi dressed in their exotic clothes. That would would have caught a lot of attention to Israelites who were going about in their daily grind. This wasn't normal. This wasn't typical. And when they found out why they were there, to see the one born king of the Jews, it was probably a source of much anxiety to them. Why would that be? Well, mainly because they knew that it would be like lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite. That it would set Herod off really quickly. And that could mean all kinds of things. Negative things for them. And so all Jerusalem was troubled too. Continuing in verse 4. Look what Herod does. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. By the way that would be the Israelites who Herod thought. That actually knew the word of God. He assembled all of them there. Pharisees and the scribes. And he, he, he inquired of them. Where the Christ was to be born. Now. Now. There's an important detail here I don't want you to miss. Notice where Herod's mind goes immediately. He thinks that this could be the Christ. He thinks that this could be the long-awaited Messiah. The one who, according to God's covenant with David, would sit on the throne of David forever. And if this was the Christ... This would be the greatest threat to his throne yet. And so he does what he does. He wants to know where the Word of God says that the Christ will be born for a very important reason. Verse 5 They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, speaking of Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Who will shepherd my people, Israel? And so Herod learns that the location of the Messiah's birth is in Bethlehem. Now, the wheels, you can imagine, must have been turning in his mind. What's the best way to extinguish this threat? And so he formulates a plan A and he formulates a plan B. Look at plan B in verse 7 first. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He wanted to get an idea of when the star had appeared so that he could calculate when the Christ was born. And that would be a vital piece of information to know just in case his plan A didn't pan out. And of course it didn't pan out. And so that was a useful piece of information for him. This knowledge that he gained from the wise men is precisely how Herod would eventually decide to to slaughter All the male children, two years old and under, in and around Bethlehem. If you think the world, by the way, is bad today, when you look around and you see women and children being exploited and enslaved and slaughtered, you've got to remember that there is nothing new under the sun. This was going on right here and right in this time in the first century. And it's been going on ever since the fall of man it's the type of world that Jesus was willing, willing to come into, to be born into, which is amazing. The Holy One would be willing to be born in a world like this? Really? And it's the type of world that Jesus would come to rescue his people from. Jesus said this. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And if you want to see the the fullness of what that looks like, crack open your Bible and read Revelation 21. And you'll see the fullness of what it means that he has overcome the world. Look at plan A now in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. See, Herod's getting the, the Magi to do his work for him. To go find the Messiah. Go to Bethlehem, he says. Find the child. Once you've found him, bring word back to me and let me come. And I'll I'll come and worship him too. And he's thinking in his conniving little mind, by worship him, I mean kill him. And that's what he sought to do a little bit later. Verse 9. After listening to the king, the magi went on their way. Now notice, out of the three parties referenced here... Pharisees, scribes, representing the Jews, uh, Herod, and the Magi. It is only the Magi that go to Bethlehem to worship Christ. None of the Jews did. None of them did. Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't tag along. Herod certainly didn't. What a preview of what was to come in Jesus' life. As John chapter 1, verse 11 makes so clear that he came to his own, that is the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. Even the possibility that the Messiah had arrived wasn't enough for his own people, the Jews, to make a short six to six and a half mile trek down to Bethlehem. Sadly, that's the posture of many professing Christians today. They won't sacrifice hardly anything to seek Christ and to glorify Him. And that reveals so much about what's going on in the heart. It's because Christ has little to no worth to them. I would ask you again this morning, examine your heart. Does that look like you? Are you willing to make just little sacrifices? Or is your heart more like the Magi? who saw Jesus as the pearl of great price, who was worth traveling not only six miles down to Bethlehem, but 600 plus miles to worship. That's evidence that the Lord has done a work of grace in the heart. I said it earlier and I'll say it again. What you are willing to sacrifice to bring glory to Christ speaks volumes as to how much he's really worth to you. And we should all be convicted, right? Because who amongst us sacrifices enough? None of us. Who amongst us will grow to sacrifice enough by the time we take our last breath? None of us. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Christ. See, this is not a pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type of sermon. This is not a a, a be better and do harder, do more and sacrifice more. But what I'm trying to do now is simply to get you to examine your heart, to see what's there, to see if you have Christ held in your heart to such a high extent that he is worth so much that you're able to sacrifice just about everything that you have for him. Look at verse nine and ten after listening to the king. They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice again who's doing the leading here. The same star that God had, had uh, had used to set them on their journey now went before them. You may recall many years before God had, had led the Israelites out of out, out of uh, Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night until they reached the promised land. But now the same God was leading men from the nations with a star until they reached the promised one. And when they saw the star resting over the place where the Christ was. In the words of Jeff Duncan, their faces looked like they had just drank pickle juice. No. No. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uncontainable joy. Joy that probably led them to hop off their camels or whatever they were on and do a happy dance. They were about to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and they were joyful about it. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, stop, notice it was a house and not a stable. By this time, Jesus could have been up to two years old, probably closer to six months to a year. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. What a scene this must have been. Grown men of great importance falling down at the feet of a little toddler to worship him. Only a work of grace in the heart could move such important men to such humility. And make no mistake, only the work of grace in the heart could lead you and me to such humility to bow down before this king. He looked like an ordinary child. But by God's grace, they had come to believe that he had extraordinary worth, a worth that made him worthy of their worship. And what was going on in those moments of worship in that humble abode was exactly what God had foretold through Daniel and the rest of the prophets. That the nations had started, had begun to come and worship the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ the Magi were the first fruits of a great harvest of worship that would eventually come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Then look what it says. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Notice it doesn't say opening up their leftovers. It doesn't say opening up their scraps. It doesn't say they reached into their satchels and just kind of Got what was left over in there. No, it says they opened up their treasures, their valuable possessions, possessions of great worth to them, and they offered those treasures to Christ. Many years later, Jesus would teach where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And these magi, they showed where their heart was by where their treasures ended up at the feet of Christ. He was their treasure. Notice this wasn't an obligation. Nobody told them that they had to bring gifts. Rather, it was done freely out of a heart that desired to honor Christ through their treasures. Let me just ask you this morning, where is your heart? Where's your heart? Another way to ask that is, where's your treasure? As Jesus said, that's where your heart is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Listen, this isn't an attempt to try to get your money. This is an attempt to try to get you to examine your heart. Are you generous with your finances and possessions? Not with what you don't have, but with with, with what you do have, what the Lord has given you. Are you generous with that? What is the attitude of of your heart? Is it joyful generosity out of a sincere love and gratitude to Christ? Or or is it this cold, begrudging obligation of God? got to do it that tells a lot you may remember that paul tells the philippians in chapter four that their generous gifts to support him and his gospel ministry are a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to god see paul doesn't sugarcoat it he says giving is a sacrifice it's a sacrifice but it is a sacrifice that when done freely out of love and gratitude to christ it's an act of worship It's a fragrant offering and acceptable and pleasing to God. That has illusions of temple worship, by the way. Christ doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. He wants your heart. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Examine your heart. Now look at the three treasures that the Magi offered. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, you and I, we're familiar with gold. We know how great value gold has. But maybe we're not so much familiar with the other two gifts, frankincense and myrrh. So frankincense, what is that? Well, that was a type of incense that was made from this aromatic resin that was harvested from trees. And it was used by the Jews in in worship at the temple. And so when they burned incense, that would have been, or part of that would have been frankincense. And so it was, uh, one thing to, to, to note, it was very, very expensive, very expensive. And myrrh, what was that? Well, myrrh, it's, it's also it's a fragrant resin or a gum that's used to make things like perfume, incense, anointing oil, and was often used in embalming. And in John chapter 19, you can see that, that's, uh, John, uh, that Nicodemus had used myrrh when he, he uh, cared for the body and wrapped the body of, dead body of Jesus. And so it was, it, it, to note about this, it was, it was very expensive as well. And so you have these three extraordinarily expensive gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, much has been made about the symbolism of these three gifts. Right? What these treasures symbolized. You'll hear people say that you know, the gold, it symbolized Jesus' kingship. That the frankincense, since it was used in temple worship, uh, it symbolizes Jesus' divine nature or his role as the great high priest. And then myrrh, since it was used in embalming, that was symbolizing Jesus' death. And as one preacher I heard say, uh, said... That'll preach, but that may or may not be what the Holy Spirit has intended here in this passage. But what he has intended, what is clear that he has intended in this passage, is that, that these gifts were, were not common gifts for the birth. Oh, so half the worth of Christ that you and I do. We live on this side of the cross. We live having the complete canon with the New Testament. We know the fullness of what Christ has done. They knew a little bit, but they knew enough where he had such great worth to them. So what do we do with a sermon like this? Well, the answer is is not do better, sacrifice more. That's not the answer. The answer is, is that if you're trusting in Christ... It's to behold your Savior. Behold His great worth. Behold who He is and the immeasurably great things He has done for you. And I promise you, if you will behold Him that way, sacrifices will come and flow freely. Nobody will have to nudge you. You won't feel like it's done at an obligation. It'll be, oh, I want to do this. I want to sacrifice. And at the center of what He has done for you, Christian, which everything else flows out of, is the gospel. Don't ever get bored with the gospel. Don't ever leave the gospel behind. In the greatest act of love that this world has ever known, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. You hear this every Lord's Day. That He was born under His own law. The Ten Commandments. He was responsible to keep that law just like you and me. But where you and I failed, Jesus Christ succeeded, having kept the law perfectly for the entirety of his life so that it could be said by the time he took his last breath on the cross that he was perfectly righteous, sinless. And he had done that for his people so that he could gift to them that perfect record of keeping the law, perfect record of righteousness. And then though he was perfectly righteous, he was condemned as a criminal. To die a criminal's death on the cross. That was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the Father. And while he was on that cross, he did the only thing that he could do, he became the sacrifice that could take away the sins of his people by bearing their sins upon himself and the wrath of God that would would have come crushing down on his people in hell as a payment and a penalty for their sin instead came crushing down on Jesus in their place until the point that he he paid it in full and said it is finished the debt has been paid it has been satisfied And then, just as the Scriptures had been foretelling for thousands of years, and just as Jesus had been saying over and over and over again, on the third day it happened. He rose from the dead. An undeniable sign that this gospel is the truth. It's not fiction, it's not fantasy. You say, how do you know that? Well, only God can raise a dead man to life, especially one who said, I'm going to rise from the dead. And now, the greatest news that there is can be summed up in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you've earned and I've earned. But listen to this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can, you get, get, get a, uh, how can you be able to be in Christ the Lord and have that gift of eternal life? What must you do to be saved? Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn from unbelief. Turn to Him. Trusting in Him. In Him alone. Trusting in His suffering and death for you. Trusting in His righteous life for you. And the instant you do that, every sin you've ever committed is pardoned and forgiven in full. And the righteousness that you don't have but that Christ Himself earned is imputed to you as if you had lived that life. That is credited to your account as if you had lived the perfect sinless life had 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 kept the law perfectly for the entirety of your life, and on that basis of Him and what He had done, you would be justified, you are justified in God's sight, granted eternal life, adopted into His family with a a pile of riches in the new heavens and new earth that you cannot even imagine or fathom. If you're here today and you are not trusting in this Christ, let me just tell you, let me plead with you, lay down the scraps of your sin and come and feast on the bread of life. Everything that you need is in Him. Everything to find satisfaction and fullness in your life is in Him. It's in Him. I encourage you to do that. And Christian, I want to talk to you too. Don't get bored with the gospel. Behold the great worth of your Savior. Look at what He's done for you. Soak in it. Remember who you were. Remember that you were a destitute orphan. With no one to care for you except the father of lies who didn't care for you. But your savior came to secure the legal right for your adoption. So that you could become a child of God forever. Remember, you were a sheep without a shepherd. With a filthy wool coat darkened by your sin. But your good shepherd, he came to rescue you and to bring you into his fold. He shed his blood and lived a perfectly righteous life so that your filthy wool coat could be washed as white as snow. Remember, you were a slave to sin, unable and undesirous to free yourself from it. But your master came to purchase you by his blood and to free you from the dominion of sin by his resurrection from the dead so that you might become truly free. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are an enemy of God. Separated from Him by your perpetual rebellion, but your great high priest stepped in to offer the sacrifice of Himself, to tear down that curtain that separated you from God, so that you can enter into His presence in the holy places forever and ever and ever. He is your death defeater. He is your hell taker. He is your sin obliterator. He is your life giver, your grace river, your soul deliverer. He is your peacemaker, your judgment breaker, your heart remaker. And the day is coming when he is going to return for his bride. And he is going to usher you and all of his people into the new heavens and the new earth where every tear is wiped away from your eye. Where there is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more accidents, no more sin. No more death. Christian. Behold Christ's great worth to you. Set your mind upon it. Meditate upon it. And then watch those sacrifices flow freely. Out of a heart that is full of love and gratitude for your savior. And so as we conclude today. I'll I'll end where I began. How much is Christ worth to you? Because. He is certainly worth. Every single thing that you have. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, thank you for your goodness towards us today in your Word. Thank you, Lord, for this account that you've laid down in your word for us to grow by and learn by and. And to see, again, that this Christ, this child, had no ordinary worth. He was worth every sacrifice of, of the Magi that they made. And indeed, Lord, that's what you're calling us to, to behold your worth. Behold the worth of Christ. Behold how, who he is and the immeasurably great things he has done for us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would apply your word to your people's hearts. And that, Lord, as we approach uh, Christmas in the, in the week or so ahead, and as we approach the new year, you would make a people who, who, are, who have the worth of Christ so high and elevated in our hearts that sacrifices just flow freely to your glory.